So we are in Isaiah. Last week we did chapter 14, which means this week we're going to do 15 and probably 16 and maybe even get into 17. And the reason I say that is most of 15 and 16 consist of a list of all of the bad things that are about to happen to Moab. There, quite frankly, isn't a lot of theological content there. It's just this city's going to be destroyed. This river's going to run with blood. That city's going to be destroyed. On and on and on. So to sort of back up, Isaiah is writing at the time when the northern kingdom is about to go into exile. The southern kingdom, Judah, is going to last another 100, 120 years. And so Isaiah is going to be long dead by the time the southern kingdom goes into exile. So that will be the province of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who are the prophets that are going to be alive then. Isaiah is prophesying here in 14, 15, and so forth about a time when Israel is regathered and returned. So these are things that are going to happen to the nations that are the agents that cause Israel to go into exile and the nations around Israel when they go into exile. And as I think I said last time, the taunts against Babylon and Assyria are for unnecessary roughness. God is using these pagan empires to deal with his people when God has decided that they smell like dirty diapers and he can't stand it anymore. So he's going to send them into exile as promised in the covenant. And we went through the section in Leviticus where he promises exile and the section in Deuteronomy where he promises exile. So the fact that all of Israel is eventually going to go into exile is something that is part of the original covenant at the time of Moses. This isn't something he just sort of made up on the spur of the moment. It's not something he made up in response to Israel's apostasy and backsliding and and violence and so forth. This is part of the original covenant that Moses made. And of course, one of the things that he says as we're going through this especially in the Leviticus exile chapter, which is Leviticus 26. All right, if you guys go off the rails, I'm going to start making things really rough on you. And the idea here is that you're supposed to wake up, pay attention, recognize that you've gone off the rails, repent, mend your ways, and get back on track. And if you don't do that, what happens is each increment of bad things increases seven times until finally you go into exile. So Assyria and Babylon are the instruments of God's enforcing his covenant on the nation Israel, Israel and Judah. The Assyrians enforce the covenant on the northern kingdom, the Babylonians enforce the covenant on the southern kingdom. But in both cases they are acting at God's behest. In fact, uh, we said before, Neo-Babylonian Empire, he basically whistles up into existence. They last for 70 years while they take out the southern kingdom and then they go out of business. Literally, they don't last longer than it takes them to do what needs to be done. So these passages that we're reading now, starting in 14 and going on for a little bit, are talking about 
Israel's going to deal with those empires when they are reunited. And the reason that they're going to be able to do that is because even though those empires were doing what God set them up to do, they did it more severely than was strictly necessary. What a football referee would call unnecessary roughness. So they're not being judged here because they conquered Israel. That was what they're supposed to do. They're being judged because in the process they caused far more death and destruction than needed to happen. That brings us up to 15. So now in 15, we're talking about Moab. And of course, you all know Moab is the descendant of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. And Moab, as you can see on the map behind me, is on the east side of the Dead Sea. As we're going to go through all the places that are going to be destroyed, you will see those places up on the map. It's helpful to have that up there so you can see what we're talking about. In Isaiah 15 and 16, it isn't entirely clear why Moab is getting such a rough deal. In order to figure that out, you've got to go to Zephaniah, which I will do when we get to that part. But the beef against Moab is when these empires came down from the north and took out Israel and Judah, what happened was Moab piled on. So God was dealing with his people through the Babylonian and Assyrian Empire, and what happened with Moab and Philistia, by the way, which we talked about last time, is they took advantage of Israel and Judah's distress and made life even more miserable for God's people. And that's why God is upset with them, and we get this prophecy. It helps to have a perspective of why we're doing this, even though, as I say, there isn't a whole lot of theological content in here. It's strictly, this is what's going to happen. So, Isaiah 15. An oracle concerning Moab. Because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. He has gone up to the temple and to Dibon, to the high places to weep, over Nebo and over Mediba, Moab wails. On every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. In the streets there were sackcloth, on the housetops and in the squares, everyone wails and melts in tears. So just to sort of orient you to what's going on on the map as I read these names, what he's talking about is each of these cities is going to be destroyed. And in that process, people are going to be displaced and there'll be refugees and all sorts of bad stuff going on. So we have everybody wailing and in tears. Verse 4, Heshbon and Elela cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Egloth Shalishayah. For at the ascent of Luloth, they go up weeping. On the road to Horonaim, they raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered, the vegetation fails, the greenery is no more. And you all remember Zoar, of course, from Genesis. Zoar was the place where Lot and his daughters fled at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There isn't a whole lot of theology going on here. It's basically just a catalog of the destruction that's going to happen to Moab. So... Verse 7, 
Therefore the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab, her wailing reaches to Eglaim, her wailing reaches to Bear Elim. For the waters of Dibon are full of blood, for I will bring upon Dibon even more a lion for those of Moab who escape, for the remnant of the land. So the sense there is as Moab is being destroyed, people are going to flee and escape. And what God is going to do is he is going to send a lion on the refugees. In other words, those who escape and are fleeing are not going to escape. I don't think we're probably talking about a literal lion so much as the Lord is going to continue to pursue and destroy even those who escape the battle. So, chapter 16. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. What I don't know whether that means is send a sacrifice. You remember that when Solomon dedicated the temple, it was a place where the nations could send sacrifice. And in fact, that's the thing that caused Rome to destroy Israel in 70 AD. You had a disgruntled guy who I think was a rogue priest, but I'm not sure. I don't remember his name. It's in the rabbinic texts. Got his nose out of joint and went to the Romans and said, the Jews are about to rebel. And I'll prove it to you. What I want you to do is I want you to send an animal and have that they sacrifice it on your behalf. They will refuse. And that is because they are getting ready to rebel against you. So the Romans sent an animal, I don't know whether it's a sheep or a bull, I don't, just don't remember. And this guy in the process did something very subtle to the animal that the priests would look at it and say, that's not an acceptable sacrifice. But it's not something that the Romans would know or understand. And so when the Romans showed up and asked to have their animal sacrificed on their behalf, the priest looked at it and said, sorry, can't do it. And that was confirmation, if you will, that the Jews were about to rebel which caused the Romans then to come down on them with one of their legions and resulted in the destruction of Israel in 70 AD. So the idea of non-Hebrews sending animals or going to the temple to sacrifice and to have sacrifices made on their behalf is perfectly biblical. And it's something that was done regularly. So. What I don't know is in this beginning of chapter 16, if that's what we're talking about. Remember, Moab has been destroyed, and so now send a lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Well, the mount of the daughter of Zion would be in Jerusalem. So the idea might be there, you guys need to humble yourselves and send a sacrifice. And that's a guess on my part, not saying thus says anything except maybe me. So then verse 2 again, like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, soar the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon, shelter the outcast, 
do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab shelter among you, be a shelter to them from the destroyer. So who is he talking to here? Reunited Israel. The idea here is, as Moab is being destroyed, don't treat them the way they treated you. So let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you, be a shelter to them from the destroyer, when the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. And of course, there we're talking about the Messiah. All of this appears to be in messianic times, as in the second coming times. And Starting back in 14, this was the regathering of Israel back to their land. And what God is doing now is dealing with historical wrongs that were done to his people by nations around them. And what he's saying here is, Moab is your cousin. Because remember, Moab is descendant from Lot and he's Abraham's nephew, so you guys are related. So now we're down to verse 6. We have heard the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence in his idle boasting. He is not right. There we have a cross-reference to Zephaniah 2. And I'm going to pick that up in verse 8. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. So what happens with Moab is when Israel is sent into exile, Moab goes, neener, 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 and makes claims against their territory and so forth. And it makes their situation worse. And so God remembers that. So as Israel is reunited, he is going to deal with Moab. And that's the subject of Isaiah 15 and 16. So back to Isaiah 16 and verse 6 again. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence in his idle boasting. He is not right. Therefore let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken, for the raisin cakes of Kir Hareseth. Obviously a place that had vineyards and good produce, which are now destroyed, and so everybody is mourning, if you will, that the raisin cakes are no longer available. Verse 8, For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma, the lords of the nations have struck down its branches which reached to Jazer and strayed into the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Verse 9. 
Therefore I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elelah, for over your summer fruit and your harvest a shout has ceased, which is to say there is no longer anybody rejoicing over the harvest because there is no harvest because there are no people. Verse 10, And joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field, and in the vineyards no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Combination of no crops and no people. Therefore my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, and my inmost self for Kir Haraseth. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, In three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be very few and feeble. Let me give you a modern example. I used to be in the Army, and I was at one time stationed in Arlington Hall, which is Defense Intelligence Agency. And each department was known by a three-letter acronym. So I was in RSO, which was a research organization. RSO was the name of the department. RSO was also the title by which the director was referred. So you would say, RSO wants you to do something. And when somebody said, RSO wants you to do something, what that means is the director of the RSO division wanted you to go accomplish something. So the person was referred to by the name of the organization. Same thing happens in biblical usage. So here we have Moab, depending on context, it can be the king of Moab, or it can be the nation of Moab. And that's what you're seeing with the pronouns, which go back and forth, you know, Moab, he, that's sort of one usage. The other usage is, of course, Moab is descended from a person by the name of Moab. So it's an actual person who was the head of a tribe, and so the head of Moab can refer to the head of the tribe, or it can refer to the nation, depending on pronouns. And God, when he refers to nations, tends to use that interchangeably, depending on who he's talking about. But it's the same word, Moab, in either, either case. Pronouns seem to shift back and forth, and it's kind of hard to keep them straight if you don't understand that. On to 17. An oracle concerning Damascus. And of course, Damascus is Syria. And you are all astute enough to know that Assyria and Syria are two different groups. So Syria is centered on Damascus and is the area which is known as Syria today. So it's north of Israel, Depending on whether Lebanon is a going concern or not, it's east of Lebanon. Sometimes it absorbs Lebanon, you know, depending on where you are in history. But it's the area directly north of Israel. Assyria is the area up north of the Euphrates River, considerably farther north. 
Israel and Syria are frequently rivals. So earlier we talked about the fact that Reason and Remaliah were allied. Reason was head of Syria. Remaliah was the son of the king of the northern kingdom. And so lots and lots of times that the northern kingdom allies with Syria against Judah or back and forth. Before the 1967 war, the Golan Heights were much the same as Gaza is now. You'd have the Syrians up on top of the Golan Heights periodically poking mortars into northern Israel. So in the 67 war, they conquered it fair and square. And everybody is trying to get them to give it back, and they aren't about to. So finally, Trump says, fine, it's yours. You conquered it fair and square. We're done. Anyway, back to Damascus, chapter 17. Behold, an oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora are deserted. They will be for flocks, which lie down, and none will make them afraid. First off, Damascus is one of the oldest continually inhabited cities in humanity. There has always been a city in the area known as Damascus. So this is yet future because Damascus has not ever been utterly destroyed. And the idea, the cities of Aurora are deserted and will be for flocks which lie down and none will make them afraid, which essentially means that it will be returned to pasture land as opposed to a city. And there are going to be so few people that the flocks are going to be able to wander around and graze and nobody's going to run them off or do any harm to them. Verse 3. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. All right. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim. That can be a couple of places. So in the north, you have Hazor and Bethshan, which are two fortress cities. Hazor is directly north in the valley that leads up to the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon. So you remember in the story of Deborah, where you had the Syrian commander gathering people at Hazor and so forth? That's a fortress city because it's in that river valley that comes down in the Bekaa Valley down the center of Lebanon. You also have Beth Shan, and Beth Shan sits astride the wadi that comes up from the Jordan River into the plain of Estrelon. That would have been, for example, the route that Abraham would have taken when he was coming down from the north and coming into Israel. The plain of Estrelon or the plain of Jezreel, both names work, is an east-west plain north of the Carmel Mountains. And it's chariot country, tank country, whatever you want to call it. And so there's two fortresses that control the access to that valley from the north. Hazor, which is in the middle, straight north, and Beth Shan, which is toward the Jordan River on the eastern edge of the plain of Esgrelon. Depending on time and period, Syria has controlled either one of those for periods of time. Israel has controlled them. Whatever invader comes down has controlled them. There are two strategic pieces of terrain that have fortress cities on them. So I don't know what fortress here we're talking about. Verse 3, 
the fortress will disappear from Ephraim. So both Hazar and Bethshan are in Ephraim, the northern kingdom. And depending on whether they're allied with the Syrians or whether somebody has come down and attacked them or whatever, various people occupy those. So I don't know which one we're talking about, but the fortress disappearing from Ephraim seems to be that Damascus will no longer control one or both of the northern approaches into Israel. So the fortress will disappear from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears. And as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Raphaim, gleanings will be left in it as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries at the top of the highest bough, four or five in the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. This seems to be talking about the Assyrian invasion. They come down from the north. So they go through Damascus. They take Syria out in that process and the two fortresses in Ephraim. And of course, those will all be taken by the Assyrians. So I'm, I'm assuming that's what we're talking about. So in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low and the fat of his flesh will lean and there won't be anybody left there, I believe is talking about the Assyrian invasion. So we're all the way down to verse 7. In that day, man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the asherim or the altars of incense. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. The reason that the northern kingdom goes into exile, the southern kingdom also, is idolatry. Because you remember when they get sent into the land, first by Moses, who talks to them before they cross the Jordan, and then Joshua, as they go into the land, their instructions are to destroy all the high places. The instructions are don't intermix with the people there, don't intermarry with them, don't ask how they worship their gods, none of that stuff. And by the time Israel is ready to go into exile, they have sort of lost track of those instructions. And Ephraim goes into idolatry first. You, you all remember the story of Jezebel. So what we're talking about here, everybody looking to his maker, he will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look to what his own fingers have made, either the asherim or the altars of incense. So what he's saying is when this all goes down, they're going to realize that the false gods that they have put their trust in are of no use to them and they will instead look to the God of Israel. But of course at that point they're on their way into exile. When they were gathered under the Messiah we're not going to do false worship and idols and all that kind of stuff. Verse 9, in that day their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops which they deserted because of the children of Israel and there will be desolation. That may be a reference to the initial conquest of the land. There were high places in the land before Joshua took it. So 
the children of Israel dispossessed the Canaanites of their high places, but they then reverted themselves to idol worship. Verse 10, for you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Again, I am assuming we're talking about idolatry there, idol worship. In other words, rather than doing what I told you, which is do not intermarry, do not intermix, do not study the religion of the people who are there, you have planted the vine of a stranger, which I am assuming is they have taken on the ways of the people that they dispossessed. Certainly possible that I'm incorrect, but that's what it sounds like to me. A harvest of grief and sorrow. So I'm thinking that's talking about the Assyrian invasion. Let's finish up the chapter and we'll quit. Verse 12. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold terror. Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. So 14, 15, and 16 is prophetic from Isaiah's point of view. And he's talking about what's going to happen to Assyria, what's going to happen to Babylon, what's going to happen to Philistia, what's going to happen to Moab. Those are all yet future to Isaiah. Then we talk about the exile, and then what he's saying is, at some point, our God will chase all of these nations who have oppressed us away. So verse 14, at evening time, behold terror, before morning they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. What he's saying is God will give recompense to the people who are going to be used to chasten Israel. And the reason for that is because when they do what God sent them to do, they do it with far more enthusiasm than he intended.